Guess who was moderating the Democratic debate? Guess. Rachel Maddow. Really? Wretched Rachel? She's moderating the debate? I mean, God forbid she gets sick. Who are they going to ask? Michael Moore to sub in? NBC News announcing the moderators for the two Democratic debates it's hosting. And here they are. We've got Lester Holt. Lester Holt, who's so dumb. Remember, he fell for North Korean propaganda. He reported it as just like the news. He was like, oh, things are beautiful here in North Korea. Squalor? What squalor? They're skiing. They're having a blast. Things are fantastic here. Then we've got Savannah Guthrie, who she's a popcorn news reporter. She reports on, on popcorn news. So presidential debate is a big deal. I hope she can handle herself. Then Rachel Maddow who is quite possibly clinically insane. She is a far-left conspiracy theorist who happens to have a television show where she gets to showcase her nutcasery. Then Chuck Todd, another Russiagate conspiracy theorist who they put on TV. And then Jose Diaz-Ballert, who no one's ever heard of, but don't worry, he's Fidel Castro's nephew. No, I'm not making that up. You can look it up for yourself. I mean, it's a joke, right? The media itself is a joke. I mean, these really, these are supposed to be the people giving us a fair debate. These are nut jobs. The media every day are becoming more and more the enemy of the people. They propagate lies, fake news, and conspiracy theories that actively hurt conservatives, that actively hurt Trump supporters, enemy of the people. They portray conservatives in a way that riles people up so that they go out and they hurt Trump supporters and the media, they do it intentionally. They know what they're doing and then they parade around. They have the audacity to parade around as a free and fair press. No, it's because of them that we cannot be free. It's a total scam. And they don't care about the actual needs or interests of the American people. And what it is doing, it, it is rotting our country because they are the most dishonest they've ever been, I think. And therefore, we have on today's White House Brief a very special guest to talk about this, probably the best person to talk about it, because who better to rail against those parasites than Mark Levin, the great one? So we've got Mark Levin coming up on today's program, and then we have a very special show for you. We have an exclusive interview with Benjamin Netanyahu's son, Yair Netanyahu. This is the first interview he's ever given. So that is all in today's White House Brief. Do not go anywhere. Today's going to be a good one. All right, Mark Levin needs no introduction, but we'll give him one anyway. He hosts the radio program, The Mark Levin Show, his own program here at Blaze TV as well. He's the host of Life, Liberty, and Levin every Sunday night on Fox News. And he is the author of the number one New York Times. It's all over the charts, topping charts on New York Times, Amazon, best-selling book, Unfreedom of the Press. And it's chronicling exactly what we were just talking about. Mark Levin does all that, and he still has time to talk to us. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing just fine. So I remember when I, uh, when I, before I even started at this network, I remember seeing a promotional clip of you and you're saying, I am not fair and I am not balanced when it comes to defending this country, our freedom and our constitution. And I said, that's it. That's it. And that's why you have so many more viewers than these people ever will, because I'm in a town where you've got all these people saying they're objective reporters. Instead, people know where you stand and therefore you can be a much more honest merchant of information because they know exactly where you are. What does that lie that all these reporters at CNN and MSNBC are just doing objective work? What does that lie do not only to our discourse in America, but also the institution of the press? 
Well, it is destroying the institution of the press. You know, Jonathan, I make a distinction between the modern mass media and a free press. The modern mass media, which pushes the Democrat Party progressive agenda, a radical agenda, that also is involved in social activism, whether it's so-called climate change or open borders or Obamacare, what have you. There's not a dime's worth of difference between the vast majority of newsrooms and journalists and the Democrat Party. That's not news, that's not press, that's propaganda. Any, any non-Republican, non-Democratic regime all over the face of the earth would be very appreciative of that kind of reporting. The reporting today, the, the newsrooms today, they're basically the Praetorian Guard for big, overarching, centralized government. They reject the Patriot Press that helped found this country. You know, the Patriot Press was all for, obviously, individual liberty, representative government, private property rights, and so forth. And they pushed the American Re Revolution. They were very influential in the uh, Declaration of Independence. So they wanted to fundamentally transform government a monarchy that was imposing its will on the people. Today, the media supports big government, centralized government, the more the better, and they want to fundamentally transform us, the people, the civil society, the republic. So when the president calls out a newspaper or a TV uh, a station or a reporter and says, you're the enemy of the people, you and I know exactly what he's talking about. No, he's not Stalin. Uh, and nor is he any of the other presidents who, in fact, did arrest journalists and did shut down newspapers. No, I, I mean, I, and I think that's such a, a great point. You talk about in the book how in the founding and for a lot of the country's founding era and early history, there were actually partisan papers. They were nakedly partisan. Is that really any different than what we have in what you call the Democrat Party press today, except for the fact that back then, at least they were honest about it? It's a good point. What followed the Patriot Press, really in about, about 1780s or so, into about the 18, early 1860s, was a partisan press. A, 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 that, and, the, and the newspapers would back one party or another, one candidate or another, one cause or another. And you knew it. And they were proud of it. And some of them were on the payroll of various administrations, as a matter of fact. And you have newspapers today that are uh, evidence of this. You have the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, the Arizona Republican is now the Arizona Republican. The, the nation had newspapers like this from, uh, from you know, all over, the, all over the country. And today we have something that's much worse. We have a one-party press. Right. And moreover, it doesn't identify itself as a one-party press. There's something interesting going on in these newsrooms, though. Unfortunately, it's not diversity of thought or independent thinking. That's not going on. But what's going on is how they choose to brand themselves. There's a more radical element in the press over the last 30 years that has been pushing this notion of public um, uh, journalism or what they call community journalism. What is this is sort of Saul Linsky activism. Right. And they're saying, look, we have no apologies to make, but for us there would have been no civil rights movement. Uh, excuse me. Those were black churches that led the civil rights movement, not <laughs> newspapers. Or they would say, but for us, we wouldn't have this, that, and the other. And we should proudly say who we are. And that we take the so-called news, we determine what it is, we, we launder it through our, our progressive ideology, and then we tell the American people what to think about it. We should be proud of that. And then you have others, and that, by the way, is sort of the MSNBC, CNN model. You have the New York Times that says, shh, shh, shh. no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. We're not going to have our reporters on some of these CNN or MSNBC, some of these more provocative shows, because we want to remain in the closet and pretend that we seek objective truth. But they don't.
And that and that's the insidious part is that they, they are not upfront about it and they are convincing people that they are objective. And I think you made this point, which I, I think is such an excellent point, is that on CNN, there is no distinction. Is Anderson Cooper, is he an objective journalist? Is he an opinion guy? Is Cuomo, is he giving his opinion or is he just reporting the news? Because they opinionate in the studio, but then they go out into the field and play objective reporters. So they're blurring those lines, which I think is, is, is so dangerous. You know, in 1942, there was a commission that was put together by publishers and broadcasters, and they were concerned about whether or not freedom of the press would survive based on their own conduct and the conduct of their various newsrooms. And they decided to take a good look at this, and they, they started in 42. They put out a report in 1947, which I discuss in uh, Unfreedom of the Press. And they, they determined there's lots of challenges they have. And they said, but the greatest threat we have is if we lose the respect of the American people by commingling fact and opinion. And it doesn't appear that this really turns off a whole lot of uh, news outlets or news platforms because 80% of Republicans distrust the media today. And I don't mean they oppose the First Amendment and freedom of, of the press. They oppose what the modern mass media are doing to it. And you have 80% of Democrats who think it's just fine. So I guess that underscores my point. You have a Shorenstein uh, Center review that was done. It's also in the first chapter, looking at the first 100 days of the coverage of Donald Trump. And this is a Harvard outfit. They were stunned. They said that the coverage of Trump has been negative overwhelmingly in every dimension. And they pointed out that NBC, CBS, and CNN their coverage in the first 100 days was over 90% negative. New York Times yep. and the others over 80% negative. So it's a reality, it's a fact. And the, the modern mass media really have nothing to do with a free press, the purpose of which is to inform you and me and everybody else about information that's relevant to our lives so we can make decisions about our own country, our own community, and our own family. Rather. We are browbeaten day in and day out, whether it's impeachment, whether it's the Russia collusion, whether it's obstruction, whether it's a constitutional crisis, whether it's Trump is like Hitler, Trump is like Stalin, Trump is like this one or that one, and it's, and it's endless, and they're turning off the American people. I've always said it's one of two things. I want to see which one you think it is. Is it that they are cynically lying to the American people, they are frauds, and they know that they are not objective, and they know that they are, they are ignoring certain stories to feed their viewers, their readers, a narrative? Is it that, or is it that they have deluded themselves into thinking that they are actually doing honest, straight up and down reporting? I think it's mostly the first and a touch of the second. In other words, uh, they know what they're doing. Right. But they're also so full of themselves, they're, they're so narcissistic and, and egomaniacal at this point, that they feel they're on a moral mission. Uh, and so they feel what they're doing is a moral imperative. And they don't care about the consequences for freedom of uh, the press, regardless of their comments. Uh, they don't care about the consequences for the American people. And so you get, you get people like Jim Acosta, who's a true lightweight, disrupting a presidential news conference. Um, interfering with the ability of the American people to know what's taking place. It's called a presidential news conference, not Jim Acosta's news conference. And they pull his ticket, and there's still six CNN or however many reporters there, and they act like, wow, this is an attack on the First Amendment. No, stop disrupting presidential news conferences. They're not about Jim Acosta and CNN. You can ask tough questions, 
but you don't get to filibuster and monopolize. And conversely, Obama was never treated this way, ever. He would take a handful of questions, he would filibuster, people wouldn't yell at him, they wouldn't call him names, they wouldn't accuse him of things, and it was Obama who sicked the, or his administration, who sicked the FBI and the New York Times and Fox and the Associated Press. To the best of my yeah, knowledge, Donald Trump James hasn't Rubin. sicked the FBI on anybody. Yep. And it is because of Jim Acosta and his uh, antics at that press conference that they're not even holding them anymore. I mean, Sarah completely stopped doing her press conferences. The president doesn't hold them because the, because of what Jim Acosta was doing. So, I mean, you want to talk about freedom of the press. Thanks, Jim Acosta, for that. I want to get to one more thing, because uh, if you didn't know already, NPR, Annalisa Quinn, writing in NPR, who just adored your book, as you can probably imagine, um, writes a review, a very nasty review, Unfreedom of the Press is full of bombast and bile. For three straight paragraphs, she just goes on attack against you, uh, a thing she doesn't like about you, has nothing to do with the book whatsoever, just attack after attack. She doesn't like your tone, she doesn't like your show. About paragraph four, she writes, he touches on a handful of clear problems in American media from the often poor distinction between reporting and opinion to the distorting incentives of the internet. So you have to get to the middle of her piece to realize she doesn't really have a problem with the book and they acknowledge that, that this is a huge problem. So if you have people, liberals at NPR, writing this is a big problem, why is there no desire to fix it? Well, because people like her, number one, are unhinged. They're also <laughs> dishonest intellectually. Um, She's not a very good writer. If you read, she rambles on and on and on, and yet she thinks she's pretty smart. She's not smart, she's snarky. She also <laughs> contributes to the New York Times. She gave one or two sentences to chapter six of my book, which is the longest chapter, how the New York Times betrayed millions. That's the title of the book. She also tries to cherry pick and mock and so forth. I spent an hour unraveling what she thought she was unraveling on my own radio show. But this is the problem. These people are never gonna reform themselves. They're never circumspect about what they're doing. and uh, They don't really care. They live in a bubble. It's within like a 20, 30 mile radius around Washington DC or 20, 30 mile radius around New York City. And so they're not gonna reform themselves. Why do they keep doing what they're doing? Because they're leftist ideologues, that's why. But the good news is this. I am convinced, because this is America, because we believe in freedom, and freedom's about creativity and free will and mobility. Freedom's about the ability to think for yourself. What's going to happen is we're gonna to continue to, to develop through technology more and more news platforms, more and more opinion platforms on the internet, likely beyond the internet. And what's going to happen to the New York Times? Well, what is happening to the New York Times? The New York Times would be dead today, but for the fact that a a billionaire from Mexico, a telecommunications magnet, bought about one-fifth of it and saved it. Or look at the Washington Post. It was going broke until Amazon, Bezos, bought it at a fire sale for $250 million. Look at CNN's ratings. If you can find them, they're in the tank. Look at MSNBC. Once this president is gone, they have no business plan and so forth. They're struggling. They're struggling. They're losing subscribers. They're losing audience. They're losing readers and viewers. Meanwhile, there's more and more competition out there. And I'm not saying the internet, all the people on the internet are great. No, in fact, some of them are pretty damn awful. You've got perverts and all kinds of people on the internet. And you have them in your neighborhood too. And you probably have them in places you've never seen before. But the goal is to, to be discerning. We the people, like the colonists, like the beginning of the country, 
We can discern good websites from bad ones, smart people from dumb people, good blogs from bad blogs. There are bloggers giving us information in real time all over the world. We have more access to more information than ever before. These are the new pamphleteers, as far as I'm concerned, while the old hard left, New York Times, Washington Post, represented by a bunch of young, really immature uh, leftist types, many of whom have served in Democrat administrations or definitely ideologically left, are gonna be without a home, and that's a good thing. You know, right, that's so right, because right now I think it's five companies, five conglomerates control, I think it's 90% of the information out there. And I, you know, I was at a certain point, do we break them up? Or is what you just gave a better solution than breaking up the, those conglomerates? Because that's at a point where it seems like a small group of people is controlling the vast amount of information out there. They're going to break themselves up. Now, they're going to do a, little da- a lot of damage in the meantime. And this is an evolutionary process. It always is as uh, new things develop and new platforms are created with new technologies. That's also why I'm a conservative free marketeer. Uh, I believe in technology. I believe in advancement, economic progress. It creates wonderful, wonderful things. It is liberty's friend. So uh, when I hear people attacking technology because we're going to lose jobs, I think to myself, now, wait a minute. Where are we gonna draw the line? Should we have drawn it before the Industrial Revolution? How about before the assembly line? Uh, Before uh, computer sciences uh, and so forth? So people who make that argument sound like big centralized government leftists uh, who who, who, who reject big government except apparently when it comes to managing the economy. I say this. Let things work out. They always will. And they'll always work out to our benefit. When the government gets involved, we lose control. Conservatives don't control government. And there aren't enough smart conservatives to run an economy. That's why we don't believe in that sort of thing. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, there's, uh, we, we can actually discern for ourselves. People are smart enough to do that for themselves, and they can separate bad information from good information. The tech overlords, all of them, they think that people can't, and they have to do it for them. The American people have always been able to do that. That's why what you do is so important. That's why what we do here at Blaze TV is so important. So, Mark, I want to thank you so much for your insight on all of this. Jonathan, God bless you. You are terrific. I Keep appreciate up the good work. You as well. Thank you. God bless you, Mark. All right. That was Mark Levin, everyone, author of Unfreedom of the Press. You can buy it wherever books are sold. Be sure as well to download the White House Brief, this program, as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll be able to find it. Want you to go rate it and review it so it goes straight to the top of the charts. And coming up, an exclusive interview with Yair Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel's son. He's never given an interview before. This is his first one, so stay right where you are. Hey guys, welcome to the White House Brief. I'm here with Benjamin Netanyahu's son. Yair Netanyahu has been a vocal defender of his father, fierce defender of his homeland, and is here with us now as part of the Advanced Security Training Institute, along with the group's COO, Carrie Sims. Guys, thank you so much for coming. Thank, thank you, you for, for having, having us. us. This is your first interview, I'm, I'm being told. Is that yes, right? It is, it is. I'm very excited. <laughs> so I'm very honored to have you. That's, that's amazing. Um, the ASTI is the group. Can you first tell us a little bit about what your group does and why they are important, and particularly why here in the U.S.? Absolutely. So the Advanced Security Training Institute is basically takes U.S. first responders, so police chiefs, fire chiefs, emergency managers, to, to Israel, 
and they're learning about school safety, counterterrorism, and cybersecurity from an Israeli perspective. The reason that we focus on those disciplines is the fact that Israel is, they're the leading and global experts in these three disciplines. They've never had a school shooting like we've had here in the United States. Um, they're the leaders in counterterrorism because of their vast experience in this area. And then they're also parallel uh, above everyone in the area of cybersecurity. So by taking U.S. first responders to Israel and learning about these three areas, um, we're really making America safer. Um, we are providing the information that our first responders need to keep our community safe and to save lives. And why us? Why does, why, why, why does Israel care about <laughs> helping Americans get these skills? You know, that's actually a really good question because the first time that I traveled to Israel, I actually talked with all of our instructors and I asked them, why are you so invested in the United States? And they said, number one, our primary and largest ally is the United States. So it's actually in our own self-interest to keep America safe. Uh, but also, um, not only are you our ally, but we're your ally in the Middle East. Um, so there's just, there for, you know, we are their greatest ally, they're our greatest ally, and they are very, very, very committed to the national security of the United States. So yeah, Israel and America, they of course have had this relationship. A lot of people want to know why does it even matter? Why do, why do Americans care so much about Israel? And why do we do so much for Israel? What is the importance of that relationship? Right. So Israel is the number one ally of the United States, and the United States is the number one ally of Israel. We have no better friends. You know, our enemies, whether it's Iran or radical Islamists, they call Israel the little Satan and America the big Satan. So they see us as you and you as us. And So they first want to get rid of Israel, and then they're coming for course. us. Of course. And by the way, they're right. Israel is America, and America is Israel. We're coming from the same Judeo-Christian uh, roots and civilization. And, uh, and that's and very important because we have allies. I don't know why we call them allies, but we do. We have allies like Saudi Arabia who share none of our values. They don't agree with us on anything. I mean, you look at our cultures, they're extremely different. They're not even mm -hmm. compatible. And yet you have Israel who actually the people, the leadership, everyone actually shares a lot of the things that Americans believe in. Exactly. So unlike other countries in the Middle East, not only that we have the same interests as America, but also the Israeli people adores America and uh, is friendly with America. And uh, we have, for example, the only 9-11 memorial with the steel from from the twin towers outside of uh, outside of America is in Israel, and when just when nine eleven happened, you know, so Israel was in mourning, mm -hmm. uh, like like it happened to us exactly the same. But the Palestinians were celebrating in the streets and handing out candies, and you can tell that Israel is the most reliable ally of the United States in the Middle East. And although it's only in the size of New Jersey, it can give so much to the United States for uh, security, uh, intelligence. There's a lot of terror attacks that th were throttled by Israeli intelligence that were supposed to being carried out against American uh, uh, interests around the world and even in America itself. Yeah, the intelligence thing is huge. I think that people forget about that, just how much intel Israel gives us and how much what we know about what's going on in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. 
exactly. uh, uh, comes from you guys. So there's also another point that's very important to talk about, that Israel is the only safe haven for Christians in the Middle East. Christians in the Middle East are being uh, ethnically cleansed mm -hmm. in, most of, uh, in most of the Middle East, and Israel is the only place in the Middle East where not only Christians survive, but also thrive. And uh, we have full um, uh, religious liberty for all faith in Israel. We have uh, uh, gay uh, uh, equality, woman equality, all the countries surrounding us. Uh, <laughs> Which is something, let's put it, yeah. to put it lightly, is not exactly yeah. right around the Middle East, all, those other countries. All the countries surrounding us, uh, being gay is punishable by death, woman is officially the possession of her husband or her father, and Christians are being persecuted. For A good example is the holy city of Bethlehem, where Jesus uh, Christ was born. So up until 1994, it was controlled by Israel, and it was 80% Christian. And in 1994, Israel gave the control of the city to the Palestinian Authority, and now in 2019, the Christian population stands around 10% mm -hmm. because they've been persecuted out. That's incredible. And you don't hear, you don't hear that in the news here. I, mm -hmm. I, I have to imagine you don't hear that in the news in, in many of those other countries. Yeah. Carrie, let me ask you, so how, what made you, how did you guys come together and start this institute, and how did that all come about? Mm -hmm. Well, it was founded by Israel Stefanski. Um, Israel Stefanski is uh, a first responder in Israel. Um, when he was 15 years old, he was actually waiting for the bus to come and to take him to school. And as the bus pulled up in front of him, it blew up. Mm. And once he realized that it was a suicide bomber, um, he was literally the first responder that went on to the bus, began pulling off um, those individuals who were who were still alive. And um, and as a result of that, he uh, he began going to paramedic school. Um, is one of uh, Israel's youngest uh, first responders. He's been to fifty suicide bombings. Mm. Um, he's referred to as the puzzle man. He's the he's the guy that when someone blows himself up, he figures out who the bomber is and uh, because obviously that's so important to figure out who the suicide bomber is to determine any other um, potential threats um, right, right. to the area. So so Israel Stefanski is a first responder and um, in fact actually when September 11th happened, Israel flew over to the United States with an elite Israeli team to help with the recovery. So this is another example of how the state of Israel, when the United States is in crisis, they send over their very best to help us in in, in these horrible um, situations. So he came to the United States and then also has has been in other emergencies or natural disasters like um, Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina um, and and other um, other challenges we've faced in the United States. So, but then after. Um, September 11th, about within a, a few months, actually, after September 11th happened, U.S. first responders wanted to start traveling to Israel because they recognized they were not really prepared for a terrorist right. event. So those U.S. first responders started traveling to the United States, and Izzy became sort of the natural point person um, to start that training. I want to talk a little bit about our president, Donald Trump, because he is often portrayed as this anti-Semite, white supremacist, and you look at what he's done for Israel, and you look at what he's done in Israel, and you look at his family even, and you just are trying to put the two together, like how does this fit together? How does what I am told about him in the media fit, you know, what I'm seeing him, his relationship with Israel doesn't make sense. And, and what is your take on that? Well, in my view, I think President Trump is the best friend that Israel and the Jewish people ever had in the White House. 
he will be remembered in Jewish history for uh, forever for moving the embassy to Jerusalem and recognizing Jerusalem mm -hmm. and recognizing the Golan Heights. The Jewish people still remember uh, um, King Cyrus the Great from Persia that recognized Jerusalem 2,500 years ago. <laughs> Thousands of years yeah. ago. So, so we have a, a long-term memory. And the vast majority of Israeli adores America and adores President Trump. He's a real rock star in Israel. <laughs> that's incredible. I remember Obama, he said, he said, I'm the closest thing to a Jew that's ever sat in the Oval Office. And to me, that was just an incredible thing to say. Donald Trump's actually not just running his mouth and saying things. Donald Trump is actually doing things. And, and to portray that as anti-Israel um, is incredible to me. He's, he, he's done so much for Israel. It's almost as if, um, you know, I'd like him to do some of the things he's doing in Israel here, for instance. And this is not Donald Trump, but I did want to talk to you about the wall that separates Egypt and Israel, because in America, we're dealing with our own issues on the southern border. Israel has a wall with Egypt, and to say it works is probably an understatement. Yeah, so we had a problem at the early 2000s uh, uh, onward that uh, we have a border with Egypt that is just an open desert. And we started having uh, um, a lot of uh, uh, f uh, a big flow of illegal immigrants uh, crossing from Africa because Egypt has a border with Sudan and, the, and then from there the rest of Africa. And they would just walk uh, from there, uh, from Sudan to Egypt and then uh, right through the border with Israel and gang going uh, all the way to Tel Aviv. Uh, so they would go just walk from third world countries into first world country. And Israel is only 8 million people. So tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants eventually would have uh, uh, bring to the destruction of Israel. So in 2011, we br uh, built a wall uh, coast to coast on uh, the border with Egypt. And since the wall was completed, the illegal immigrants... Uh, uh, the illegal immigration have completely stopped. Completely. Zero stop. Zero. Uh, zero percent, yeah. I mean, that's, that is just incredible. Uh, it, it makes sense, because when you think putting up a physical barrier, hey, it, it works. But I mean, that, that, that is incredible that it went it down by 100%. So, yeah. It works there. Uh, I believe that it could absolutely work here. I was hoping we could solve world peace here and come up with all these solutions. I think, I think we did pretty well, though. I appreciate it. Carrie, Yeah, thank you so much. Thank it was a real so honor to have thank you guys. You having us. Thank you. All right, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, guys. White House Brief, we will see you next time. A reminder to everyone, I'd really appreciate it if you'd please rate, review, and subscribe to the White House Brief podcast. It will make sure the truth rises above all the other stuff out there. So please rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for listening.